BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Beyond Zero is Toyota's vision of a carbon-neutral future and more. Toyota gives you the power to reduce carbon emissions and help move toward its vision with a wide selection of electrified vehicles. Whether you're into hybrid EVs for that traditional Toyota feel with better MPG, battery EVs for a smooth and silent ride, or plug-in hybrid EVs that switch between battery and fuel, Toyota has you covered. And for those who prefer hydrogen, Toyota's fuel cell EVs emit nothing but water vapor from the tailpipe. So cool. Giving you the choice on how to reduce carbon emissions and move closer to Toyota's Beyond Zero Vision. Visit toyota.com slash electrified vehicles slash beyond zero vision. Toyota, let's go places. Pushkin. I'm Maeve Higgins, and this is Solvable, interviews with the world's most innovative thinkers working to solve the world's biggest problems. I think a solvable is preventing armed conflicts between China and the United States. That is Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia. He's now the president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Okay, so as of this year, the United States has the world's largest economy and China has the second largest. But most economists estimate that China will overtake the United States as the largest economy in around 10 to 15 years. As China grows, the increasing rivalry between the two countries has led to an increasingly rocky relationship. While President Trump has said that he and the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, will always be friends, the US administration has been expressing serious concerns about China. In June, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, said to a news conference, China wants to be the dominant economic and military power of the world, spreading its authoritarian vision for society and its corrupt practices worldwide. The tensions between the two countries are playing out through the economy and through national security. In the United States, there are concerns about Chinese ownership of US infrastructure and the potential for Chinese-made products to be used to spy on or damage the US. And the two countries remain in dispute over territorial issues in the South China Sea. Looking at the economy, last year the US imposed three rounds of tariffs on more than $250 billion worth of Chinese goods, on everything from handbags to railway equipment. China hit back by imposing tariffs on US products, including chemicals, coal and medical equipment. But while officially Washington and Beijing have agreed to a truce in their escalating trade war, 
Experts, including Kevin Rudd, who spent much of his career as a diplomat and China expert, are really concerned about the potential for this relationship, which has the power to affect basically everyone in the world and to become an armed conflict. The Asia Society Policy Institute, which Kevin Rudd leads, is a think tank with a problem-solving mandate. Kevin Rudd's job is to tackle policy challenges confronting the Asia-Pacific in security, prosperity and sustainability. Basically, working to avoid war between the world's two biggest powers. He's so calm and steady as he discusses this job with Jacob Weisberg, you'd be forgiven for thinking this huge task is an easy one. As you'll hear, it's not, but he has a solvable. What is the problem of potential armed conflict between China and the United States? That is, why are we worried about it? If you spend enough time in Beijing and Washington these days, you know that both countries' war plans are alive and well and are being modernized. And modernized around two sets of scenarios. A collision between military assets in the South China Sea or over future political and military contingencies on the future of Taiwan. These have now become sharper, much sharper, because of the fundamental deterioration in the political relationship between the two countries, which right now is in its worst condition, really, since the end of Tiananmen. Kevin, why is it your problem? Why is this a problem you've chosen to focus on? Because there's no such thing as a bilateral armed conflict between China and the United States. It automatically involves America's friends and allies around the region, by which I mean the Asia-Pacific region, and the world, meaning the Europeans as well, whether they like it or not. And for those of us in the world who also believe that uh, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, we just have a productive relationship with China, while still being a friend and ally of the United States, uh, this is more than of passing academic interest. So there is this idea of the inevitability of conflict, military conflict between US and China, this, this notion of the Thucydides trap, that great powers uh, end up in conflict with each other, like it or not. Do you, why is that, why is that uh, theory wrong in this case? I don't believe the theory is of itself wrong in terms of it being predictive of certain forms of political and ultimate armed conflict. However, I do not think it's determinist. That is, history also tells us that there are ways out of Thucydides' trap. For me, the most alive set of precedents we're looking at in the current environment are those not of the Second World War, but the First. In the First World War, we saw two sets of fundamental dynamics underway. Britain concerned about uh, the rise of Germany and Germany surpassing Britain in terms of naval power and aggregate economic power. And simultaneously, Germany concerned about the industrialization of Russia and what, therefore, a future Russian empire could look like, given its larger population as a strategic threat to Germany. And then we had the incendiary event, which was an assassination in an obscure place in Serbia uh, of Archduke Ferdinand, who nobody had ever heard of but it was capable of igniting a much more fundamental geopolitical and geostrategic conflict. Was war inevitable? No. It was the most avoidable war in history, a comprehensive failure of diplomacy. Therefore, when we apply that logic to the events of uh, US-China relations in the 21st century, many of these dynamics remain alive. 
um, a rising power, an established power, triggering events in the South China Sea and or Taiwan. But my judgment is uh, diplomacy always is capable of finding a way through. We simply need to be focused on the seriousness of the threat and the credible nature of the alternative off-ramps. We're in at least the early stages, if not the full-throttle version of a U.S.-China trade war. Is the scenario you uh, worry most about a trade war or economic conflict escalating into military conflict, or do you think it will come if it comes, that the risk comes from something else entirely? In the history of um, political relationships and diplomatic relationships, it is never a neat binary of one thing or the other. It's a multiplicity of contributing factors. What we see with the trade war, however, is one articulation of a much broader American strategic rethink against China, which began, frankly, uh, with the election of the Trump administration, but was in part in train before that as well. And how do we characterize that? The Trump administration in December of 2017 announced a new national security strategy where it proclaimed the end formally of 40 years of strategic engagement with China and the commencement of a new period of strategic competition against China. At the same time, China, since the election of Xi Jinping as president and party secretary in 2012-13, has embarked upon a consciously more assertive Chinese strategy in the economy and in foreign policy and security policy. And so we now have these two new dynamic forces uh, interacting with each other, for which the current, as it were, flashpoint is the trade war. But it is, if you like, simply the um, icing on the cake of a much broader unfolding American strategy involving rolling back against China on the rest of the economy, investment, capital markets, technology markets, talent markets, as well as classical foreign policy and security policy, as well as the continuing unresolved dilemma of human rights between China, the US and the rest. So what we don't know is if and when the trade war is resolved, uh, or at least brought to an uneasy peace, whether the rest of the American rollback against Chinese power will then unfold. The administration remains divided on that, just as the Chinese administration remains divided about how now to proceed. That's why we are in a, currently in a dangerous environment. So you see signs that there is military buildup, more preparation for a potential war uh, in the last couple of years. But what points that towards conflict as opposed to a balance of power and deterrence? Well, again, if we look at the precedents of the First World War, the operating principle applying in the mines and the chanceries of Europe prior to the guns of August of 1914 was the balance of power. Central alliance um, of uh, Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire versus uh, Britain, France and, and Russia, and in those days the Russian Empire. Unfortunately, balances of power, because they are balances, are inherently unstable, and they can be triggered by underlying um, incendiary political events. So while balances of power are one thing, the bottom line is much of the reaction in Washington is being generated by a political conclusion um, and a national security policy conclusion that the balance is moving more decisively in China's direction. 
We see that already manifest in the classical instruments of economic power. China is already the largest um, economic partner of practically every country in Asia. That was not the case 10 or 20 years ago. And if you look at the force modernization of the PLA and its uh, naval assets, its air assets, but in particular, its capacity to use its onshore rocket forces to create a much more effective air-sea denial strategy against US armed forces in the West Pacific, these are new. These were not there 10 years ago. That's why we are in a volatile environment. I think the assumption has been that the most likely triggering event to military conflict would be over Taiwan, that China would act to take power in Taiwan and that the United States would react, might react. Now, the American policy has historically been strategic ambiguity. So it's not, we don't have a stated policy about whether we would defend Taiwan or not. How has that changed? Do you think the risk there has increased or the risk has simply shifted to other potential theaters of military conflict? The classical scenario concerning Taiwan still remains the most incendiary because there are three moving parts within it now. Uh, Chinese nationalism under Xi Jinping, where his statements over the last five years have become progressively sharper on the future of Taiwan and the point at which uh, China would wish to see uh, Taiwan returned by peaceful or non-peaceful means to the motherland's tender embrace. Secondly, in Taiwan itself, a DPP administration um, in this rambunctious Taiwanese democracy, which is uh, fun to watch but sometimes scary to analyse, and the predisposition of the Democratic Progress Party, not just under Tsai Ing-wen, but the rest of her party supporters, uh, to resist any form of embrace from the motherland and to move more decisively in an independentist direction, which is China's internal red line. And thirdly, under the Trump administration, uh, let's say less strategic ambu- ambiguity than we've seen on the part of previous American administrations. For example, not just the most recent American Taiwanese arms deal, but the fact that you now have open meetings between Taiwanese national security officials uh, and the national security advisor of the United States in the White House. These are new and different instruments of US policy backed up by a new and fresh congressional level of support for Taiwan as well. How does this admixture produce a future Taiwan crisis? I can't predict. But the possibilities are no longer remote and they don't become probable, but they are still becoming increasingly quantifiable. We've recently seen China back down, something I wouldn't have expected in the face of massive public protests in Hong Kong over an extradition law that was one of a number of incremental steps limiting some of the democratic prerogatives of Hong Kong. Did that surprise you? Not entirely, because if we look at the history of, of Hong Kong since the handover in 1997, and I'm old enough and ugly enough to have been around uh, for the handover, and in fact began my dip- diplomatic career uh, at the time when Thatcher signed the joint declaration uh, with Deng Xiaoping back in 1984. The dynamics of Hong Kong PRC politics have always been on the volatile side. There were massive public protests, for example, by the Hong Kongers in 2002, 
which also brought about a, a U-turn in Chinese uh, policy on a proposed set of changes back then. They failed in 2014, that is public protests, and 2019 they've succeeded. The PRC leadership, uh, while always seeking incrementally to reduce Hong Kong's aggregate political autonomy within the framework of one country, two systems, has never been, shall I say, uh, so doctrinaire that it can't accept political reality when it sees it. I think the parallel uh, resolve, however, will be in China itself, where it fears Chinese protests could emulate those undertaken in Hong Kong, will be an even a more vicious crackdown against any evidence of dissent within the PRC proper. So let's talk about the solvable aspect of this. You point to these escalating tensions, you point to some of the potential flashpoints, yet you think the war is avoidable and the risks can be reduced. How are we going to do that? Well, the degree of difficulty, given what we face at present in US-China relations, is, diff- is hard. Uh, and I say that as a preliminary comment because both in Washington and Beijing at the moment, um, standing up and giving a speech and holding an olive branch is a good way to get shot down at the moment. In Washington, increasingly the question which is asked of people like me is, well, Kevin, whose side are you on, theirs or ours? Uh, and the question I get asked in Beijing increasingly is much the same. Uh, Kevin, old friend of China, speaker of Chinese language, person who's visited our country for 150 times over the last 35 years, are you with the Americans or are you with us? And the bottom line is my response to both those questions is not as some UN peace envoy. It's simply saying uh, from a perspective of constructive realism, how do we navigate a way through this unless either of you actually want to go to war? And when I ask that question, there's usually a long pause. But on the practical question of how then to proceed, my argument would be this, that a rational analysis by both countries of their fundamental national interests and their fundamental national values, which are at play here, leads to you to kind of three conclusions. Uh, category one is those uh, questions of national interest and national values where there is no solution. For example, Taiwan, for example, uh, over the country's fundamentally different political systems. One's an authoritarian capitalist system, um, China, and the other is uh, America, which is this rolling rambunctious, some would say too rambunctious, uh, political democracy and an equally rambunctious uh, capitalist system, which from time to time throws out to the rest of us things like the global financial crisis. But we forgive you for that. I was going to say, Kevin, you said one country has an authoritarian capitalist system and the other has a president who wants an authoritarian capitalist system. Well, you could say that. I couldn't possibly comment <laughs> because you're an American and I'm not. <laughs> so um, I'm just a guest. You've always had impeccable manners, <laughs> ever the diplomat. No, that's never been said of we Australians. We've often said we have no manners at all. We try. So I think, you know, category one here is um, what's the stuff you can never agree on? And being very blunt about that. And there's precedence for this in the um, relationship between Brezhnev's Soviet Union uh, and, uh, and the United States. There came a point after the Cuban Missile Crisis where detente was seen as not a dirty word, but something which could actually be done managing the fundamental differences between the two countries, differences which could not be reconciled, 
but which in the conclusion of both countries did not warrant uh, a, um, an underlying view that war was inevitable. Category two in US-China relations is what stuff between the two countries is hard, really hard, uh, but nonetheless manageable and capable of uh, producing mutually acceptable solutions which don't violate each country's fundamental interests. Now, there I'd just give you two examples. One is North Korean nuclear uh, denuclearization, where the differences between Beijing and Washington are significant, but ultimately not irreconcilable, given um, that uh, both Beijing and Washington would arguably want a more stable uh, Korean peninsula. Another example would be China changing its uh, global economic practices, both on trade and investment questions, to open the Chinese economy in a much more fundamental way than Chinese decision makers have been prepared to allow in the last decade or so. So that the underlying nature of the American current critique of China's economic policy uh, is dealt with by changes in Beijing. Are both those things really hard? Yes. Are they doable? Yeah, but with absolute diplomatic and political determination. And finally, uh, in uh, the way in which I argue this principle of constructive realism, there's a category of uh, policy engagement between Beijing and Washington, which should be easier and doable on a daily basis. Uh, for example, on challenges of global climate change action and, for example, on challenges of global uh, financial and economic governance through institutions such as the G20. Uh, and frankly, through common endeavour in dealing with global or regional humanitarian crises. The reason I argue for this way of viewing the relationship is that when we get locked into what the Chinese would describe as a siwei, a way of thinking, about each other, in this case China and the United States, which heavy loads category one, which is it's all doom, gloom and despair, without reg regard to category two and category three, then we can end up in self-fulfilling prophecies about the way in which this relationship evolves. By contrast, if you adopt what I've argued as being a framework of constructive realism, which is being realist, about the stuff you can never agree upon and constructive about the rest of it. And if you are constructive about the rest of it, incrementally building greater strategic trust over time, then you can navigate these changing fundamental geopolitical dynamics between the two and the balance of power between the two over time in a peaceful way. We've only seen a glimpses so far of Chinese nationalism rallying against the United States as an enemy. Uh, it hasn't really, it, it seems that Xi Jinping hasn't pulled out that weapon yet. He hasn't brought people, we haven't seen people in the streets in China burning the U.S. flag. Is there a risk that happens over the trade war or that something else uh, unleashes this public demand for more of a reaction against the United States? Well, the history of the US-China relationship is kind of an interesting beast. And those of us who've studied this over the years uh, still find it interesting and not just interesting, but troubling. Without boring your listeners, 
the 60 second summary is a bit like this. Uh, 20 years plus of strategic animosity, 49 to 72. Not just the Korean War, where you killed each other uh, in large numbers, uh, but the Taiwan Straits crises of that period, which almost brought you to war on multiple occasions. President Eisenhower threatening nuclear obliteration of China on a number of occasions. Then Nixon and Kissinger and detente, Mao and Zhou Enlai, uh, taking us from 72 really until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91. But the organizing principle there was a common strategic enemy, namely the Soviet Union. Uh, period three was really from 91 through until I would say the rise of Xi Jinping uh, in 2012-13 with a common mission statement between the two countries, no longer strategic collaboration, the common enemy had gone. It was common economic engagement and how can we each benefit each other's economies with an implied American assumption that the Chinese would fully open their economy and in America's utopian dreams, China ultimately transforming itself into a democracy of Singaporean type characteristics. Then we come to the present. A more assertive China since 2012-13 under Xi Jinping, Belt and Road Initiative, South China Sea Island Reclamation, China 2025, high technology strategies, as well as Xi Jinping abolishing term limits. And we are now are where we are uh, with Trump taking us perhaps into this current period of a strategic competitive uh, doubling down against China in the period since 17. So against all of that, you've had vastly evolving Chinese sentiments towards uh, the United States. I've spent the three of the last six weeks in China, and I've seen something of a return to some of the nationalist rhetoric against the United States that we haven't seen for at least 30 years. Reruns of old Korean War movies, uh, a revisiting of the spirit of the Long March of 34. Um, we Chinese can be resilient despite the American bully. Uh, this language I really haven't seen since the post-Tiananmen period. It can be turned on and it can be turned off. So I think the jury's still out. Did that trip, Kevin, leave you more concerned or more optimistic about the possibility for detente than you were before you went? It left me, um, um, frankly, uh, modestly schizophrenic um, uh, on the question which is, on the one hand, the uh, economic needs of China and of the United States, when you strip back all the political rhetoric uh, for a trade deal to be done in order to restore business confidence in both economies going into uh, 2020, uh, in fact, becomes clearer. That is the economic rationale for the two leaders to do a deal and to resolve the trade war and get that off the political agenda, but also the agenda of markets uh, is as strong and as real as it's ever been. At the same time, there has been a strategic conclusion, I believe, in China that President Trump cannot be trusted. And more fundamentally a view in China that whether it's Republicans and Democrats, that the new uh, American resolve to double down against a rising China is now bipartisan. And that therefore the fundamental strategic assumptions which have governed the US-China relationship since the beginning of strategic engagement under Nixon and Kissinger are now fundamentally changing. 
And my conclusion coming out of Beijing and speaking to multiple Chinese political leaders and um, those who advise them, as well as Chinese entrepreneurs and, and others only peripherally engaged in Chinese politics, is that we have now embarked upon a period of deep strategic review in Beijing about what its response to the new American strategy should be. And the jury in Beijing is still out on where that will go. The U.S.-China relationship plays itself out at the commanding heights of military relations, economic relations, diplomatic relations. People like you have access to it. But listeners to this show, I think, want to know if they uh, think this situation is as dangerous and as high stakes as you say, what can they do? Is there th- are there things that ordinary people can do to reduce tensions reduce the risk of conflict with China? Well, if the audience of this program um, is sort of a wider public opinion in the United States, and uh, let's call it friends and allies of America, as I'm assuming this may not achieve a wide broadcast reach into China itself, um, then I suppose my thoughts would be as follows. And what I say to American policy leaders, whether they're Republican or Democrat, is much the same. Number one is think through very carefully what actual political or policy change you want to see brought about in China, as opposed to what just sounds good in terms of American domestic political soundbites for either a primary in the Democrats case or President uh, Trump's rolling re-elect on the other. In other words, what's going to work? What's going to be effective in changing concrete Chinese economic practices? Uh, And therefore, to think through very carefully what uh, can deliver those outcomes, as opposed to that which actually compounds the problem in Chinese actual behaviours. What do I mean by that? Um, I think there is always a danger with an American rhetorical overreach in response to China that you create circumstances within Beijing itself which enable political leaders to simply uh, circle the wagons, haul up the nationalist flag and unite the country uh, against the, the American threat. As opposed to a dynamic which actually does exist or has existed most recently in China, which actually itself internally asks the question, have our political leaders in China begun to overreach? Have we gone too far with island reclamation in the South China Sea? Have we gone far too far with BRI? Is it affordable? Is it in fact sustainable? Can we Chinese do this without attracting massive foreign policy reaction? Is China 2025 as a high technology strategy which declares that we will overtake every other Western country in high tech and AI in the next decade? Is that vastly too provocative? Is it realizable? And was it smart to abolish term limits for the presidency of our country? Uh, These are the sorts of, shall I say, doubts and anxieties within the Chinese domestic politic, which American policy leaders should be mindful of in how they deploy uh, their policy. In other words, to be more granular in their response to China rather than simply taking the grand political sledgehammer, which can induce instead a much cruder nationalist response. You're talking in a way about trying to win over Chinese people as opposed to affecting government policy directly. But can that work 
in a country without democratic accountability, where the opinion of the public, first of all, if it's based on information, genuine information at all, doesn't have any obvious impact. I think the beginning of the analysis of uh, what makes Chinese politics tick uh, is along these lines. First of all, there are 86 million members of the Chinese Communist Party and there are 1.4 billion Chinese people. And the both the members of the party and the wider public now, whether we like it or not, and whether Beijing likes it or not, have multiple sources of information uh, despite the firewall. For example, these Hong Kong protests have spread like wildfire within China itself because there's just a limit to how much you can shut down within a two-hour period. It's like playing whack-a-mole in Chinese uh, social media. You shut down one here and boom, it bumps up there. That's the first piece. I think the second piece in the analysis is this. Within the Chinese Communist Party, it's not monolithic. 86 million members, there are a bunch of different views, as there are within a 25-member Politburo and even a seven-member standing committee of the Politburo, which functions effectively as the Chinese cabinet. They all have multiple sources of information. The danger for American strategy is this. Uh, as reflected in a conversation I had recently with a friend of mine in Beijing who I've known for 25 years. And as someone who's quite politically literate, he said, you know, um, President Trump's strategy towards China, um, this doubling down against China um, and the way in which he's conducted the trade war as an expression of U.S. national interests only has fundamentally eroded the pro-American constituency within China itself. Why? Because in the past, American presidents have acted almost as a representative of uh, two forces in the world. Uh, The city on the hill, that is representing a much wider universal set of values, as well as obviously being president of the national interests of the United States itself. But previous American presidents have sought to, as it were, represent both. Now we see an American nationalist president who, frankly, in China's domestic view, uh, is no more principled than Vladimir Putin uh, or any other leader. And isn't bringing up human rights at all. Well, if you look carefully at what um, President Trump has said since he became president, he doesn't talk about democracy in the world. Uh, He doesn't talk about human rights in the world. Um, In fact, he um, often begrudgingly speaks about allied interests in the world. Um, when he says MAGA, make America great again, and let's put America first. And if you looked at his most recent um, presidential political rally, on the, uh, launching formally his re-elect about the first interest of every American president being to look after American citizens, but to the exclusion of the interests uh, and values which unite the family of nations which have by and large, uh, supported American global leadership since 1941, not 45, 41, Uh, then the critique I hear in Beijing on the part of those who are more objective observers of these things in the Chinese domestic politic, I think has some foundation. In other words, is President Trump trashing the global democratic brand, that is, global democracy brand, and is he trashing... Also, at the same time, the American brand 
uh, within China more broadly. Hence my question about the way in which American strategy towards China is pursued. I'm not arguing for some sort of namby-pamby kind of hand-holding, uh, isn't China great, um, it's a wonderful civilization that never does anything wrong approach. That's never been my approach. If you look at my own period as Prime Minister of Australia, we had many, many, many uh, fundamental disagreements with the Chinese, um, but without fundamentally imploding the Australia-China relationship. It's that sort of granularity which I'd recommend to our American friends, while recognising the fact that America's a superpower. Australia obviously is not. But there's a way in which you conduct your strategy towards the Chinese which should be mindful of uh, the breadth of opinions within China itself, rather than simply assuming it's one monolithic block determined to, as it were, um, destroy the United States. Well said. And Kevin Rudd, thank you for joining us on Solvable. Good to be with you and maybe solve more things together. I can already hear myself repeating some of what Kevin Rudd said at parties so I sound like smart and informed. Like, guys, listen up. We need to be mindful of the breadth of opinions within China itself rather than simply assuming it's one monolithic block. Everyone would be like, yeah, Maeve, that's so true. But seriously, when tensions appear to be rising inexorably, it's easy to lose sight of the diversity of opinions within all sides of a dispute and to remember that this means there can be room to find common ground. When things heat up between the US and Iran or the US and North Korea, it's good to know that in the background there are diplomats with experience and goodwill in countries like China and Australia and the UK working to resolve issues with China before they get as dangerous as that. As we've heard in other episodes of Solvable, peace between nations is fragile and takes work and courage, arguably even more courage than war. Solvable is a collaboration between Pushkin Industries and the Rockefeller Foundation, with production by Laura Hyde, Hester Kant, Laura Sheeter and Ruth Barnes from Chalk and Blade. Pushkin's executive producer is Mia LaBelle, research by Sher Vincent, engineering by Jason Gambrell and the great folks at GSI Studios. Original music composed by Pascal Wise and special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Heather Fine, Julia Barton, Carly Migliori, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. You can learn more about solving today's biggest problems at rockefellerfoundation.org slash solvable. I'm Maeve Higgins. Now go solve it. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. What's out there is unknown. So at UC San Diego, out we go. Because to take on the challenges of the here and now, you got to get your feet wet, your eyes open, and your mind out there, way out there. 
turning the unknown into cures, culture, and connections with each step forward. So pack a bag, a notebook, and some sandals, and get ready to look far and think further. UC San Diego. Learn more at ucsd.edu. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 